This is 93.7 The Ticket. Look at me short. Look at me short. I'm the captain now. Three-time national champion, Vershawn Jackson. Oh, got a bunch all alone is Vershawn Jackson. And Vershawn, he'll get it to the 24-yard line. Coming at you live from the Copple Chevrolet GMC studios in the heart of Lincoln, America. On air and online at theticketfm.com. Here he is, Vershawn Jackson. Ah, yeah! That's right, it's the captain. It's the ticket, 93.7. Talking to the legendary Coach Darlington. Um, Coach, when we talk about teaching football 101, how'd you get into that, and what is it? Well, uh, I think it started with Coach Devaney when he was here, and then Jim Hugie, who was principal at East, uh, taught the class. And I had to provide the 16 millimeter film for the class every week uh, in '73 and '74. And Jim's wife had some medical problems, and he—they were moving to a drier climate. And uh, and he said, "Well, why don't you teach the class?" So I started teaching it. Uh, we have uh, at one time only did it in Lincoln and had seven, eight classes uh, per year. I've been teaching it close to 40 years. Uh, Last year, uh, we had uh, Metro Tech in Omaha and and, uh, Southeast Community in Lincoln. And we had people as far away as uh, Nebraska City that would come into the Lincoln class. We have seven classes. We have uh, one night as a tour of the facilities we have a banquet and invite uh, two or three players from the team and honestly during the 30 some years we've never had uh, players that didn't equip themselves really well and and uh, that's always a highlight the end of the year banquet and we start as if nobody knows anything about football and teach uh, whether you've uh, you know, know a great deal or know nothing. It's a class that you can learn, and we show film, and there's obviously lectures and walkthroughs and stuff like that. So when teaching 101, what's, what is the first thing you teach? What's the first? Well, I do what uh, Paul Brown, he, uh, he'd he be happy since he's the Cincinnati Bengals because Cleveland moved to Cincinnati. Uh, he would hold up a football uh, with pro players who had played, you know, 10, 15 years. And he'd always start as if they knew nothing. And he said, gentlemen, this is a football. And he would describe what it was and the dimensions, etc. So that's how we start out. And we obviously uh, focus uh, classes on offense, defense, kicking. We University's been kind enough to give us uh, tape. I have an undercover narcotics agent who's looking for you, by the way. <laughs> and he, uh, yeah, right. he edits films even... for me. And uh, so, and then there's a gentleman at Southeast Community College who 
helps me. So we have cut-ups and uh, focus on the uh, phases we're working on. We always focus on the three big plays of the game that were crucial for winning or losing. And we, you know, obviously a lot of questions and answers. We walk through things. We've had injuries. We used to teach it strictly for women. And um, then uh, Title IX came in, and we the uh, insurance people said you have to all, all open it for men also uh, to be uh, handle it with federal rules. So we have men too. We mostly are women, but we have maybe forty percent of the classes are. Um, our men, and uh, many of them take it every year. I have a Big 12 official who uh, takes it every year, and obviously when we have questions about rules, it's great to have him because he knows the rules, and it's it's been fun. What are those three big uh, theories for winning? Well, number one, you've got to win three of the – well – if if we take a game, there there are going to be at least three plays that turn a game, uh, a close game. Now think of Michigan State. One of the big plays in the Michigan State game was the was the punt return. They didn't have a first down in the second half until they ran a punt return back because uh, we didn't realize they had a second return guy and the punter screwed up horribly and we lost the game well that would be easy you know that would be one of the big plays but uh, sometimes there would be a play that's controversial you know and you'd run it back and forth and but uh, each game varies you know many times a fumble an interception might be one of the big plays or a long run or a long pass mm-hmm how how good was Bobby Newcomb? Well, he was a very, very talented player. Uh, could have been a very good quarterback, but we had two very good quarterbacks. And his dad thought he would be better opportunity for the NFL if he moved away from quarterback, and uh, which he did. Tremendous return man and uh, tremendous athlete. Okay, so coach, four three five two three four. Which base package do you like the best? Well, what we teach the class is who are the people you're coaching. Mm. Uh, if you have a whole bunch of defensive linemen and few linebackers, you would focus on going four. T- Four three or four two defense. Uh, we moved to that scheme because uh, when we were a five three defense, which the NFL calls the thirty defense, we only had about five good in- interior linemen, and you need at least six because of the injury, etc. And we evolved into what you're familiar with. Of we had two 
really big, talented inside players. And then we had nine people that could run like the wind. Uh, outside backers, uh, uh, linebackers, uh, defensive backs. So it, it's what talent do you have? If you try to do something that a player can't do, you're not going to be successful. And there are good uh, schemes that can be run if you have the proper talent. It would be very, very difficult to say, well, you, you've you got to do this if you're going to be successful. Well, you better fit what what you uh, what the talent can do if you don't have defensive backs with much speed which was unfortunately our situation for a number of years we played a tremendous amount of zone defense because it was uh, hard for a 4-7 guy to cover a 4-5 guy and then of course once we greatly improved the speed in the back end, we could play a lot more man, which you would be familiar with in practices. And we could stunt like mad if we wanted to, and we could do a variety of things because of the talent we had in the back end. The the black shirts, what, what, what does that black shirt mean to you as a coach and giving it to your players? Well, it was the really focal point, and uh, when I first came to Nebraska, and it was uh, followed through uh, most all the time when uh, Coach Osborne and Coach Solich were head coaches, and then it was bastardized after that. Uh, Bo Pelini hated the black shirts, by the way, and he didn't want anything to do with it, but... Uh, it really set the starters uh, who got a black shirt to realize that they have an additional responsibility within their ability to be leaders because to get a black shirt is the ultimate of a defensive player in Nebraska and, and all the years that I was there. And we made a big deal about it because it was a big deal. We had one player that we took it off of him late in the year because he wasn't playing well. And if we had it to do over, we really probably made a mistake because he really went in the tank further because it was so devastating to him. Mm. Got you. Yeah. What? Uh, so when we when we talk about those '90s teams. You know, a little some things come to my mind is unity. We had work ethic. We were tough. We were fast. What would you say about those teams in the '90s? How did Coach Osborne and you guys orchestrate that those '80s teams and morph it into what probably is arguably the the best college football team in that 1995 Husker team? Um, how did you guys do that? Well, recruiting to some extent, I think one of the big things we did uh, is we started recruiting specifically by position. And um, and Coach Osborne, of course, would be very involved, and later on Coach Solich. And 
saying, yes, we'll offer this guy. We won't offer him. Before, you know, you might have a good player. I might have a good uh, eye back in, in California. But maybe there were three eyebacks in other states that really were better. Well, why should we take the kid from California and avoid taking a better player from another state? So when we started recruiting by position, I, I would say very frankly, if the secondary didn't play well and wasn't very talented, there's only one person to blame. And that would be me because I had to, you know, evaluate uh, along with Bill Bush and other GAs that I had um, the talent that we were offering and the same way at other positions. You know, if uh, Charlie had a bunch of poor defensive linemen, well, there's nobody to blame but him. He's the one that said to, to recruit him. And that really kind of pushed us from winning 10 and 11 games to winning 12 and 13 games, in my opinion. Just recruiting. At what point, what year was it when you finally said, okay, we need to, 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 to recruit speed at linebacker versus the bigger guys? When, when was that switch? Early 90s? Well, you know, we had kids in the – 80s it could run, you know, and and in the 70s, of course, we had, you know, George Andrews and those kids that uh, could run run really well. Um, I think we certainly in the secondary when we started recruiting defensive backs, the priority was people that could line up against a, a Florida State and a Miami receiver and win. Mm. And uh, because if you, you know, you could go to the bowl game and be 10-0 and 0 and then you get beat because you can't match up. And it's not the player's fault. You know, in no way did the players not give a good effort and do everything they could. But, uh, you know, it's just like track and field. You can want to run the 100-meter dash, but if you're 12 flat, you aren't going to win. you got to have the ability to do it. So speed was exceptionally important. We didn't worry so much about size. But uh, sometimes we would have in our uh, substitution packages two players that would go on and be defensive backs in the NFL as rush ends in certain packages. Well, you know, that's a lot different for an offense to try to block than a 4-8 defensive end rushing the passer. You get a guy that's 4-5 rushing the passer, it's a different ball of wax. You you know how they – you know, in this day and age, as far as this game, um, you, you used to only have the offenses who would look to the sideline to get the play or to get the audible or whatever it is, they will look to the sideline. And then now I'm starting to see defenses look to the sideline to get the play. Is that something that's hurting defenses because they're not focused on on their well, keys? 
Well, you have to do it quickly because sometimes I would be slow signaling from up above. And I know, uh, I remember Mike Brown especially, they would want the call quicker. And I would sometimes hold the call to get an idea of what the other team was doing personnel-wise or whatever. And, of course, we would signal personnel as quickly as we could to the defense so they'd know if they had three wide outs or four wide outs, et cetera. But I think it's, uh, you know, we used to do both, you know. Uh, we would hold our calls sometimes until we were sure what personnel they had on the field. Mm. Okay. What, what made Coach Osborne great? He's the most consistent human being I've ever known in my life. Wow. Whether we're winning or whether we're losing, his demeanor is unreal, and I'm sure you can uh, echo that too. Absolutely. I mean, put it in the nutshell. <laughs> put it in the nutshell. What about Coach McBride? Well, Charlie, uh, you know, had uh, uh, he was a fiery guy. And uh, all of us had different personalities, obviously. And uh, but uh, you know he uh, he would get excited sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I had him on too a couple of weeks ago, and it was it was it was real. Coach McBride is still Coach McBride. Like I told him, the only thing I can remember <laughs> is him saying, "I can still hear him telling me to run it again." <laughs> That's right. So yeah. so, Coach. You know, talk a little bit about uh, playing football at Rutgers, having a – which I didn't know you had a double master's in PE in history. And then how yeah. long have you wanted to coach? I really think when I was a little kid, you know, kids want to be firemen or policemen. Uh, our high school team, which was two blocks away, was very good when I was – six years old, seven years old. And honestly, I wanted to be a football coach and a football player from that point and never outgrew it. You talking Stonewall Jackson High School? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I had I had a dog named Stonewall. Of course, they, they, they take on your last name, Jackson, so I found that pretty crazy. But you being a – what about you being an All-American lacrosse player? Well, what was interesting is uh, uh, we did not have spring practice at Rutgers when I was there. So they encouraged us to go out for track or baseball or or lacrosse. Well, I'd never even heard of lacrosse. And I uh, ended up, I ran one track meet indoors, uh, ran the quarter, which I was a miler. I wasn't a quarter miler, and I thought, this is crazy. Yeah, I'm going to pick something else. And so I uh, just, you know, went out for lacrosse and uh, ended up playing defense. And uh, uh, I used to brag that I was the best lacrosse player in West Virginia because I was the only one in the state that was playing the, playing the sport anywhere. Right. What – who – is the best what what team is the best team in your eyes from Nebraska? 
Well, I think most people would have to, uh, of our era, would have to say the 95 team because uh, we gave Nick Saban the worst defeat of his life and we gave uh, the coach of Florida the worst defeat of his life. And we had so many players on that team as well as other teams that were went on and played in the National Football League. Um, but we had a lot of good teams in the 70s, 80s, and 90s. But the, the 90s were, and, and the 80s, you know, we got hosed a couple times and, for na- and national championship games in the 80s where, uh, you know, we, we couldn't overcome the other seven additional players the other team had. Oh, you talking about the Zebras, the refs? Yes. <laughs> so wh- let's talk about that, officiating. You know, I, rem- I it seems like I remember Coach Osborne telling us not to – that we had to beat everybody. That included the officials. Well, the ultimate uh, game to remember bowl-wise was uh, the loss to Florida State on paper in 1993 because we clearly won the game. And the officials uh, called back a punt return after there was no flags until our return man was about to score. They fumbled on inside the one we recovered. They gave them a touchdown. Um, you know, you, you had a couple situations, not many, but in my 30 years, there were two or three guys, times where the officiating was uh, slanted, to say the least. In fact, uh, one of the funny times was uh, we ended up beating Clemson or South Carolina at South Carolina. And that's when they had split crews. There'd be three big eight officials and four Southern officials in that particular game. And the officiating was horrible. Uh, The Southern officials were doing everything we could to make sure that South Carolina won to the point that the three big eight officials, uh, you know, when, when the, there was a break, you know, timeout or whatever, uh, got together and said, should we throw some makeup flags? Because this is atrocious. Well, I blasted the officials on the radio show after the game, and we ended up coming back and winning. And today, of course, it would be a big fine. But uh, on Monday, the big eight official called Coach Osborne. We're in our defensive meeting room, and a GA came in and said, Coach, uh, Coach Osborne's really upset. you got to come in here and talk on the phone. Well, he and the official from the big eight had had, had it so that they could pull my chain, I guess you'd say. And... Uh, he uh, started out saying, you just can't criticize officials. Uh, that's not uh, professional or whatever. And he couldn't even hold it, and they started laughing. <laughs> the official said everything you said on radio after the game was true. And then he related the story that the three big eight officials 
when they reported in to him after the game, they said, this game was atrocious. Those four officials were doing everything to help South Carolina win. They'd throw a pass and it would bounce and, and they'd catch it and they called it a reception. It, it was, it was uh, probably as noticeable a game that I've ever been a part of. And the big eight official commissioner agreed. You know, he evaluated the film and he could see this. This was just terrible. They did everything they could. They were fighting the Civil War over uh, to try to win the game. <laughs> okay, Coach, we got to take a break. But when we get back, Coach, we, we, we're going to do one more segment with you, Coach Darlington. And I'm so appreciative. I appreciate you in so many different levels for just everything that you've done for me over my lifetime. Um, it'd be something that I'll never forget, just you being a defensive coach, but just taking the time out to uh, to uh, come and see an old guy like myself. And uh, so I just want to tell you thank you. And uh, when we come back, we want to talk Very a little nice. – Yeah, we want to talk a little bit about – uh, do you miss coaching? So okay, hang on sure. to that. It's the captain, the ticket, ninety three point seven, with Coach Darlington. Yeah. 